Without further ado, Luke chapter 4, I'm just going to read all 15 verses. I'll start preaching on it, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit as we go to apply it to our lives. Gospel writer uh, Luke says this. He says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We'll end right there. This is God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just, uh, with our Bibles open, our hearts open, our ears open, and our spirits attentive to what the Spirit is saying to our spirits, we just ask that you would do what only you could do. Open up human hearts to receive what God is doing and saying. Uh, we surrender to your will and to your word, and in those areas where we're perhaps not, we pray that you would reveal those to us. You would soften our hearts to the things of God and show us a panoramic view of what you're doing in and around us that we might get excited about the kingdom of our coming Lord, that it would move us and compel us to jump into the swell of what you're doing. Right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. There, uh, there comes a point in all of our lives when we will find ourselves facing a season of wilderness. There might be a, po- a point in your life right now. You might be in that season right now. But whether it's now, whether it was weeks ago, years ago, or years later, we will all, as human beings... And it doesn't change when you become a Christian. There will inevitably be seasons in your life where you will reach a wilderness. Metaphorically. It might come in the point of uh, loneliness. It might come in the form of just hard testing. It might come in the form of sheer spiritual emptiness. It might come with trial and suffering. It might feel like confusion. It might feel like darkness. It might feel like nothing you're doing in life is going right. Whatever it looks like for you, it will come. Perhaps it's there in your life right now. And when you're in those seasons, you might be tempted to feel like you're doing things wrong. And who knows? Maybe you are. I don't know. It might feel, to take it a little step farther, like God has abandoned you. And I can say with authority that he has not. It might even feel that you should abandon God and start doing something else. 
And I hope that uh, as we look at this historical account of Jesus going through the same thing, although maybe a little more wild, a similar thing to what some of you are going through right now, some of you will inevitably go through later. Not to give up. That there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Don't give up. I want you to look at how the season for Jesus kind of opens up. It starts with these uncanny words, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. This whole entire episode, a season of wilderness starts with, he was full of and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. All a part of the Lord's plan, a season of wilderness for Jesus. Now, he was led into the season for 40 days, a 40-day period of fasting in the wilderness. Uh, this is where, do you remember uh, last uh, Wednesday, I think it was, do you ever see uh, some, some people walking around with some chalk uh, cross marks on their forehead? They're celebrating Lent. You know where Lent comes from? It is a centuries-old practice Christians have of surrendering some type of uh, desire or appetite in order to be present to the Lord. It comes directly from this passage. They're trying to model their lives after what Jesus did in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness, and for Jesus, it's not just metaphorical, it is literal. On the outskirts of the hill country of Judea, where he would have been from, between Judea, the hill country, and the Dead Sea is a sprawling, terrible wilderness called Jeshimon, which literally means the devastation. How's that? The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the devastation, and he leads them there for a period of about a month and a half. And in this place, Jesus is to be tempted and tested by the devil. And I want you to, I want us to scrutinize together. I want us to observe and look at the way that that the devil tempts. Maybe you resonate with some of these things. I don't know. Look at the first thing that, that the devil does in this period of testing. He asks Jesus, if you are the son, isn't that awful? Isn't that such a dirty thing for the devil to ask? Not just because of its, its suspicion and cynicism, but because in chapter 3, verse 22, what we just read a, a week or two ago, is that God the Father himself blows through the heavens and declares Jesus to be his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. Verses later, the devil shows up and says, if you are the son, if you really are the son, You ever get some of those thoughts? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? If you really are the son, compare uh, compare this uh, with the very first temptation in human history in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. What was the the attack there? Did God really say that to you? Isn't it so like the devil to suggest or to plant seeds of doubt. They often take this form, do they not? Did God really do that? Is he really with you? Are you sure? Did God really say that? I know he's good to most people, but is he really that good to you? I know he's doing stuff in other people's lives, but really, you? Are you sure? You should just give up now. 
planting and casting seeds of doubt. In fact, I think it's uh, poignant that the gospel writer Luke uses the, the Greek word for the devil. He uses the Greek word diablo, which is a compound word that means to hurl across. The name that Luke gives the devil is to hurl across. What does he hurl? I love the passage in Zechariah. Well, I, I don't love it. I love Zechariah, but the, what it's saying It pictures the devil as an accuser standing by this man named Joshua, ready to accuse him, to hurl across accusations. This is often what the devil does. He works by the power of suggestion. That's often all he can do. But it is very, very, very compelling sometimes. This is real spiritual warfare. The devil works often by the power of suggestion. If you are the son of God, did God really say that? Accusations, suggestions being hurled across. And the way that he does this, at least with Jesus, is to hurl across ways out of the will of God. He does this by appealing to Jesus' appetites. He does it by appealing to shortcuts. He does it by uh, offering caveats, okay? So the first thing, he he appeals to Jesus' appetites. Jesus is literally hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. Anyone ever fasted from food for 40 days? Not me. I hear it's very difficult. He's fasting for 40 days. His body at this point is hurting. It is longing for food. And the devil starts going after his felt needs. If you are the son of God, you can almost begin to picture the imagination starting to move on that accusation. Yeah, I should be, God should take care of my needs. What's What's the problem with making a few loaves of bread for myself? Now, not that this is any of our temptation. We wouldn't be tempted to turn rocks into bread. We don't have that power. Jesus did. How easy would it have been for him to just create a snack in the wilderness? And the devil is going after that, except that the Holy Spirit has him there, denying himself for a reason. For him, it would would have been sin. And the devil is going after his felt needs, saying, if you are the son of God, just turn some of these rocks into bread. What's the big deal? We might not have the same temptation that Jesus was faced with, turning stuff into edible objects, but we do have appetites. Appetites don't just refer to our stomach, although it certainly includes that. It refers to our felt needs, our cravings, our body. Uh, The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once referred to the body as the power pack of the human person. In other words, there are so many components to who you are. We spoke about this uh, some time ago. There's your, your spirit or your will or your heart, all the same thing. Oh, that's a, the, the, the command center of the human person. But there's also your mind, the things that you think. There's a social component. There's your soul, but there's also the body. And the body is your little kingdom. It's that which gets to play out what your heart has decided to do. Your heart is the center of who you are, but those decisions get played out in its little miniature kingdom, the body. 
And the body was made by God to do the will of the heart, a heart that has been renovated to match the heart of God, a heart that has been set free to be after God's own heart, then dictates to the body, do these things, follow after the will of God, obey the will of God. But what happens in a broken heart, what happens often in a disintegrated soul, is that the heart, which is supposed to be in charge of the body, often gets swapped, and now the body is dictating to the heart what to do, or the will, the heart and the will. You know what this is like, right? What are some examples of the body telling the will what to do? Addictions. I don't want to do this, but I can't. I can't stop. Or even simple, uh, what seem like fairly, uh, maybe sometimes fairly meaningless. Like, gosh, I want to work out, but I also really want this donut. I want to get up and like be productive with my morning, but I also just want to hit the snooze ten times. In small things like that. I just had a large pizza the other week. And I found myself, as I was shaking Parmesan on the pizza, asking myself, why am I adding cheese to a thing that is already covered with cheese? (laughs) Sometimes the body has its way, but that's not how it was intended. The body was meant to obey the heart, a heart that is being led by the will of God. Of course, it starts to get destructive when the heart, uh, the heart is dominated by the body and things like uh, appetites that are awry, addictions, and all sorts of things. And Jesus steps in on the scene with the same human appetites that we have, and he answers it by looking to the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of a father. Uh, if I could rephrase that, it's as though he is saying, Satan, there is more to life than cravings. Cravings are not necessarily bad. Appetites aren't either. Neither are felt needs. We gotta eat. What Jesus is saying here is there's something more important than that. What God is saying about every given situation. In the Gospel of John, he would actually go so far as to say, God's will is my food. (laughs) There's something more important to me than just the felt needs of my moment. What does God say about each of these things? So the devil moves on. He says, all right, if you're so keen to the will of God, I can't distract you from that. Uh, How about a shortcut? How about a halfway point? You're obviously in tune with the will of God. You want to see it all the way out. You're very, uh, perhaps he was thinking, you're very uh, concerned with the end goal of God's will, but what about a shortcut on the way to to God's end goal? He says, why don't you, Uh, Look at all of this. Takes them to a high point in a moment. The imagination starts to stir. What happened there? Was it a vision? Did he just transport him to the top of the temple? But for whatever purpose, he's up above looking down at the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan offers him all of these kingdoms, saying, I'll just give it to you all right now if you'll just worship me. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is a shortcut. And if you think about it, the end goal is actually God's will. It is God's will that the kingdoms of the earth would belong to Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 says that it was the Father's will to give all the nations to the Son. 
we see in the, gospel, uh, in the book of Revelation that all the tribes and tongues and nations of the earth will bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. What the devil is doing right now is he's not scratching the whole plan. He's saying, I'll just give you a little shortcut. If you just bow down at my feet right now, you can have it all in an instant. What is he doing? What's he offering him? A chance to bypass the process, bypass the cross and Gethsemane and the suffering and all the stuff in between, the wilderness. Little shortcut. He's saying, don't the ends justify the means? Let me give you an easy way to get to the end goal. Jesus answered him and says, interestingly, he goes again to the word of God and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. What's this mean for us? It means we don't just listen to God's word as in the first example, but we listen to everything he says, all that he says, all the time. There's no shortcuts. Jesus answers him, and the devil moves on. This time, the devil starts to learn. The devil seems to be a learner. And this time, he uses scripture. He says, oh, it seems like Jesus keeps going to the scriptures. Well, I'm going to use the scriptures. And he says, he brings him to the top of uh, the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. It's about 450 feet in the air. And he stands him on there and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off. Because God will catch you. As the word of God says, and he quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you. They'll guard you. Uh, they'll bear you up. Your foot won't even strike a stone. Yeah, the Bible. Jesus goes again to the scriptures. Keeps going to Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? How many, how many of you spend your mornings reading Deuteronomy? <laughs> this is the one book Jesus picks when he's in a battle with the devil in the wilderness. Interesting. Keeps going to Deuteronomy and he says, you shall not put the Lord, the Bible says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, in other words, uh, if we were to, if the devil were to use this on us, he might say, because what he's doing with Jesus right here, it's, it sounds like, is he's saying, hey, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, God cares about you, let's prove it. Let's put him in a spot where he has to, to show that that's true. Let's begin this journey on our terms. It's almost like he's just introducing compromise with every step of the temptation. He started off uh, uh, appealing to his appetites. Jesus was like, no, I'm all about God's word and his will. And so he's slowly slipping in these little ways to compromise. Well, okay, God's will, yes, but how about a little shortcut? Oh, no shortcuts? Well, how about you, you do God's will, but you, you, you start with your own terms. God, if you really love me, do this. Have you ever started a, a prayer off in that way? I've maybe done a few of these myself. God, here's my plan. <laughs> I'm coming to you in prayer. Bless my plans. Amen. God, I know you're up there. I have a plan. I really want you to just honor my plan and just make this happen. Amen. If you honor my plan, I will be devoted to you for the next week. God, just honor my plan. Bless my plans. Jesus' answer, I will not put God's love for me to the test with silly caveats. Wholehearted, 
uncompromising worship to the Lord. Even though all of these temptations take on different forms for Jesus and maybe different forms for us, they all essentially have the same core. Jesus is ultimately being tried at the level of trust. Do I trust God in the situation I find myself in in this wilderness? Whether it's with my appetites, whether it's with shortcuts, whether it's with caveats, whether it's with any variety of ways that it shows up, this temptation, this time in the wilderness is ultimately about Jesus trusting the Father in a situation where he might not feel the Father like he used to. Do I trust God in the wilderness even though I can't feel him in the wilderness? Do I trust God's voice even though I don't hear his voice right now? Do I trust God even though nothing is happening the way I thought it was going to be happening? Do I trust God even though I want to actually honestly give up right now? Remember, even though it's the devil that's offering the temptations, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit using what the devil meant to tempt to form Jesus for the life ahead. The wilderness is just a means by which the Holy Spirit is using to form the Son of God. To answer this question, what kind of a Messiah will Jesus be? Will he, use his, will he in his leadership use his leadership and authority to please his own appetites? To reach ends despite whatever means that he needs to get there? Or to seek his own agenda. And lo and behold, Jesus, the sinless son of God, passes the test and proves himself to be the perfect deliverer of the human race. Passes every single temptation. Is unscathed by the devil. And perfectly obeys the will of God. Doing what Israel in the past, what people in the present and in the future will continually fail to do. Faithfully resist the devil, the appetites of the flesh, and surrender to the Father's will and obey his will perfectly. And Satan is left cowering for what uh, Luke calls an opportune time. And there's almost a sense of foreboding because for those of us that, you know, we've peeked ahead at the, the end of Luke, we know what that opportune time is. Luke will tell us that Satan will indwell a guy by the name of Judas who will hand Jesus over to the leadership of that time who will crucify him and kill him. And Jesus will pass that test too. He'll pass, he passes the test in the devastation of the wilderness. He passes the test in Gethsemane. He passes the test on the cross. He passes every single test that comes his way. He remains faithful in all of them. And here's what, that, here's what Jesus' faithfulness means for you and for me. It means, as the author of Hebrews said so beautifully, he's faithful even when we're faithless. It means our failure is redeemed by the perfect obedience of Jesus. It means that even though we fail to do the right thing at the right time, Jesus covers, his, his blood and his love cover a multitude of our sins. 
It means that even though we haven't acted rightly last night, maybe even this morning, certainly in the afternoon and tomorrow night, we can look again and again and again at the perfect record of Jesus and sit in that comfort that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at our imperfect record, he looks at us through the perfection of Jesus, the Son of God, in whom we find ourselves. Or to put it in the words of uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to feel condemned, Christian. You don't have to feel ashamed of what you've gone through the past day or two or the week or two uh, before you. You don't have to feel afraid of going into Monday. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 3. For God has done what the law, its rules, and its requirements, weakened by the flesh or by our, our power pack, was unable to do. How did God do it? By sending his own son in the flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that those requirements would be fulfilled in us. Perfect, uh, a simple way of saying that is God did what we were unable to do for ourselves. God did what we couldn't do so we could have what we didn't deserve. Grace. That also means that Jesus is the only person that can save you or me or anybody else. So we come to him by grace through faith, looking to him for help in time of need. Do you ever feel tired of trying to be perfect? Or is it just me? (laughs) Or maybe perfect isn't even on your radar. Maybe you gave up on that years ago. Maybe you're like, "I'm, I'm having a hard time just being decent. I'm just having a hard time not slapping people. I'm seeing way too many head nods right now. I'm glad there's some personal distance between us. You know what? In your, uh, in your fatigue, you can, you can look to Christ who is sufficient for all of your mess-ups. You can come to him and rest in the, the power of knowing that God is not tired about you. He is not tired when he thinks about you. He's overjoyed, and there's grace to cover your mistakes. Said, well, you don't know what I did yesterday. I don't need to know what you did. There's grace for that. And don't just, uh, this, it doesn't stop there. This is not a matter of just letting go and letting God, but rather letting go and stepping into what God has for you tomorrow. We can be forgiven for the ways that we have made mistakes, but we can also step into a life that God has for us. We don't have to continue to do the things that we used to do before. Remember that apprenticing Jesus means that we follow the life that he leads. So when we look at this passage, we're not just seeing the uniqueness of Christ, although we're certainly seeing that. We're also looking at the way that Jesus sets a pattern for us to follow by the power of the Holy Spirit. What can we learn about this passage for ourselves? Well, like Jesus, your life is going to be a series of moments asking you a similar question. What kind of person are you going to be like? What kind of person are you going to be in your job, in your recreation, in your parenting? What kind of 
What kind of dad are you going to be? What kind of mom are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be in your singleness? What, are you gonna, uh, what kind of person are you going to be in your marriage? What kind of person are you going to be in a breakup, in a separation? What kind of person are you going to be in your career? What kind of person are you going to be in the struggles of life? What kind of person are you going to be uh, in the addictions that you're going to deal with or are dealing with? What, do you, what, do you, what kind of person are you going to be in the successes that come your way and the failures that come your way as you face the appetites and shortcuts and caveats and whirlwind of temptations that you're inevitably going to face? What kind of person are you going to be? And many of you may, in those moments of testing in the wilderness, will try to summon up the willpower of your tender heart to do the right thing and fail. Why? Because doing the right thing is not yet a habit. Doing the right thing is not something that comes uh, particularly naturally to you. Usain Bolt is the fastest person on the face of the planet. He won nine gold medals in the last two Olympics. But here's the thing. He ran for a combined time of less than two minutes on that track. (laughs) Usain Bolt ran for less than 115 seconds in uh, in his total of three Olympics. 115 seconds. Yet he made $119 million dollars. That's about, uh, that's a little more than a million dollars per second of running. What you might not know is that for those two minutes of running, he trained for over 20 years. He might make over a million dollars for every second that he ran, but every second that he ran counts for about two years of investment. Every second that he ran, he trained for years. We might focus on a passage like this on Jesus in sterling form, battling the devil like it came naturally, like it's a supernatural feat, like it's something otherworldly that he just woke up and did without reading what came prior, 40 days, a month and a half of wilderness, not to mention the 30 years that came prior to that in which he lived in obscurity. Jesus was in the wilderness, in obscurity, being tempted and tested without anybody there to console him, without any glory, without any ministry, without what looked like earthly success, being tested and tried. And our eyes might focus in on the devil in this passage, but they should focus on the Holy Spirit who brought them into a place of testing so that he would be able to face the devil and come through victorious and successful. Don't underestimate the time Jesus spent in solitude. That was his investment. I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, hey, Jesus was God in case you forgot. Like he could do that. He could just resist temptation. This is simple for him. I'm not God. And yet don't forget the fact that Jesus, as we spoke about weeks ago, is also fully human. 
Do you know the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, even though he's fully God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but that he emptied himself of the privileges associated with being God? You know what that means? Even though he fully could call upon angels in the sky to come and rescue him, even though he fully could just zap the devil right where he was, even though he could just get the heavenly juice coming upon him to resist temptations, he chose not to. In order to take the form of a bondservant, he's choosing to live fully as a human. So how did the devil, excuse me, how did Jesus beat the devil? Luke gives us an example of this. He beats him as a spirit-filled human being wielding the scriptures. Anybody catching this? He could do anything. He could call down a, just, a, just an army of angels to rescue him. He chooses to live as a spirit-filled human being wielding the scriptures. Anybody in this room can live that way. He's doing what we can do by his power so that we can live like he lived in his power. This is stuff that is accessible to the human being. It's even accessible to a scoundrel like me. I think there's hope for some of you today. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This isn't just a unique picture of Jesus doing his own thing, although it certainly is. It's also a pattern of how we can step into Jesus' life. But if there's anything we can grab from this text, it's that those things don't happen overnight. The desert in verse 1 prepared Jesus for the glory that came in verse 15. The wilderness always seems to precede the wonder that follows. Prayer always seems to precede power. Solitude always seems to come before significance. The cross always comes before the resurrection. And even though breakthrough is always coming, like we spoke about weeks ago, sometimes it just doesn't come until a season of obscurity and pain and trial and looking around saying, I don't think anything I'm doing is working. The times that were the honeymoon period in our spirituality, like when we first got saved or we first started to follow Jesus because it was so fun, those are great. That's what gets us in the door, man. Oh, I love Jesus. He's amazing. And I pick up his word and it's like just candy on my lips. I just want to read it for hours. And I just, I pray and I just feel his presence and it's so warm inside and I love it. I just want to talk to people about Jesus and everything in my life is just going great and I'm making a thousand dollars a minute and it's awesome. And then something happens. And it's like a light switch turns off and you actually start to struggle. And Christians have been speaking and writing about this for centuries. Some, some of them called it the dark night of the soul. It's when the light turns off. And the scriptures tell us that that's actually a normal part of your Christian maturity. It's what comes after the honeymoon. When you actually have to press in for reasons beyond the pleasure on the surface. And that pressing in is where the real fruit happens. 
But what's often the temptation for people going through a dark night of the soul is to say, I think I've messed up. Or I think God has abandoned me. I'm just going to quit. When really the thing that you need to do in the wilderness is cling more tightly to the Lord in that wilderness. The times in the wilderness are from the Lord, used to bring you to a deeper level with him. Don't waste your wilderness by short-circuiting the process. Don't waste your wilderness. The things that God is calling each of you to do, whatever that might be, are things that probably you can't just wake up to tomorrow morning and just start doing naturally. Being led by the Spirit is not a light switch that you can just flip on one morning. It's a life switch. It is a way of life that is formed in the fires of solitude when nobody is looking and it is hard to be obedient. It's hard to be faithful. All you want to do is quit and take a long nap and what you really need to do in that moment is cling to a God that you might not be able to hear or feel or sense and to stay the course and to persevere and endure. knowing that there will be a light at the end of that tunnel. But you must be formed in solitude in the wilderness. And, you know, that solitude might be self-imposed. It might be the times in the day that we draw away from the noise to be with the Lord. I know I, I have to do that. I don't do long, like, chunks of time. I like to do little moments throughout the day, always reminding me to just draw near to the Lord. Some of you might be like, I'm like, I just had triplets and I barely have 30 seconds to do anything, not even sleep. What about that 30 seconds? God is so gracious to us. He's so kind to us. He'll take your 15 seconds and he'll pour out the windows of heaven on whatever you happen to have in that moment. I remember times when my kids were like little and nuts and the house was caving in on me and they were throwing tantrums and I didn't have time to do anything. And I remember one day just, just as the house was falling apart and everybody was screaming, just making a beeline for the bathroom. 15 seconds, I sat on a little ledge in there, just covered my face in my hands and said, God help me. And then I went out into the chaos gave me what I needed in that moment. If you just got 30 seconds, that's all you need. Whatever it is, it might be self-imposed, just pulling away to be in your own little self-imposed wilderness with the Holy Spirit. But other times, and I think this is what the point of this passage is, other times it will be spirit-imposed. God will send you into a wilderness without asking for your permission. He'll put you in a place that is difficult, that feels like you're losing, that feels like you're alone, like you're doing everything wrong. You might not feel like uh, the words on the, on, this, on the page of scripture are making any sense. You might feel like your prayers are going up like two feet in the air and then falling down. You might feel like you're ruining everything and you wanna give up. You will inevitably be plunged into seasons like that. And your only job in that moment, your only job in that moment is to cling to God no matter what. 
and you will get through that season. I don't know how long it's going to last. We never know. All I know is that you will get through. Don't give up. Guys, don't give up. Some of you woke up this morning on the verge of quitting. But you didn't. You didn't quit yet. And you're here this morning by the grace of God. But the same grace that got you here this morning is there for you on Monday. And there's enough grace to last until Tuesday. And there's enough grace to get you into Wednesday. And there's enough grace to get you into Thursday. And there's some grace for Friday too. And there's grace for Saturday. And there's grace in the weeks to come. There's enough grace to get you through each day as they come. If you'll just cling to God and depend upon it. There's more grace than you know what? Paul called it grace upon grace. Too much grace. There's a reservoir of grace that you wouldn't even know what to do with. But you'll know today what not to do. Don't give up. Don't give up today. You made it this far by the grace of God. There's grace for tomorrow too. Don't give up on your marriage. I know that, I know that person is a punk. Don't give up on God. Whatever he's doing in you right now at this moment in time, I don't know what that is. Don't give up on God. I know everything within you wants to run away and quit at life. Don't give up. Don't give up on your children. I know you spent almost 20 years doing everything that you knew you could to do the right thing. You did everything that you knew you could to raise them in the Bible. You did the best you could. You raised them as best as you could. You loved them as best as you could. You made some mistakes along the way, but you did the best you could. And right now, they're almost 20 years old or they're 18 years old and they're giving you the finger and they're walking away from God and you're uh, cowering in a corner with your hands in your face saying, what did I do wrong? Am I a failure at a parent? No, you're not probably doing a lot better than you think you are. And not everything is your fault, believe it or not. Sometimes kids just need to do stupid things so that God can teach them to come back. I know because I walked away from God when I was a teenager and away from my parents and I wound up in Santa Barbara where God's got me on a tighter leash than my mom ever had me on. <laughs> and I look back on those 10 years of her praying fervently for, her, for me, and I think, dang, don't give up on your kids. You don't know what he's doing. Don't give up on battling those addictions that you're struggling with. God will get you through them, and it'll be worth it. You weren't meant to be dominated. You were meant to be liberated. Don't give up day at a time. It's worth it. Don't give up on that terrible situation that you find yourself in at work where you feel like there's no way out. What's God doing in it? Don't give up on yourself. Maybe some of you feel like you have no value and you just want to jump off a cliff. Don't give up on yourself. If God so cares about the sparrows who we care nothing about, how much more infinitely valuable are you to him than those birds, says Jesus. Don't give up. 
if you hang on to Jesus, in the middle of those moments where it matters the most, you will see a light at the end of the tunnel. And here's the beauty. You'll come out of that season better than you started. I'm going to ask Cody and the rest of the team to come out as we sing together and worship and take communion and pray. And I want you to ask a simple question. I know we went through a lot just now. I just want to summarize it with a question. Instead of running away from whatever you're going through right now, rephrase your question and ask, instead of how can I get out of this, what is God doing in me through this? And you'll start to notice with that simple question, a different way of approaching your life. Just let the Holy Spirit start from there. Heavenly Father, we invite you afresh to step into our lives wherever our lives happen to be. You, the dramatic healer of all of humanity, the savior of the human soul, the mender of the broken heart. Pray that you would, as the prophets declared, come and bind up our wounds. Heal us where we're hurting. But even more importantly, move us to the place you want us to go. I don't know what that is for each and every one of us, Lord, but you certainly do. So I ask that maybe for the first time in some of us, Christians, but maybe even people that aren't following you yet, you would just begin to light a spark in our heart for the first time of trust in Jesus Christ. We'd be able to step out into a dark place that we do not know and follow you where you're taking us. And I pray that our eyes this morning would be fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame of the cross, went on to it, and is now seated at the right hand of God. I pray that you would comfort us this morning with the sense that we will never be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there may we be found to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.